first weird experiences I've had there where none of the students there I was going to college with at all. They've all gone and graduated. So as I see students there and as I walk around, I really don't know anybody. And I know some of the professors and things like that, but none of my friends were really there. And it reminded me of when I was in college and sometimes I would get at the mailbox, I would get some letters of encouragement from my home church. I would go and they'd send me a card, maybe some encouraging words. Sometimes they'd send me a little money and just something to try to help me get through my day. There was one man in particular, a guy who'd been saved later in life. He didn't have a lot of money. He was older. He had kind of a scraggly beard. And he would just send me notes to encourage me often. And sometimes he'd send a $20 bill with a note that says, you know, this is fun money. Use it on yourself or something. There were other ladies in my church that would send me Facebook messages, uh, yeah, messages that would come through. And on some of the hardest days and most discouraging days I really had in college, it'd be interesting that I would get like a Facebook message from some lady who really couldn't even go to church anymore, just trying to encourage me. And the truth is, those people don't realize the impact that they've had in my life. They'll never know that on the days they sent those cards or sent me those messages that I actually really needed some encouragement. And that is often the case. There's people in our church family who have encouraged me, who have encouraged others that people might be surprised by. Some of you have been faithful to encourage one another, to encourage others in your church, in your community, and you may never get any recognition for it. It may even surprise others when they find out about it. But you're still faithful to do it. And you know, sometimes I think God does that on purpose. Sometimes God doesn't give us the recognition we might think we deserve here on earth, but he does it so that we will honor him through what we're doing. And those of you who encourage one another the best I know in my church are the ones who don't care about the recognition or the thanks or anything you could get in this life, but you're just doing it to honor and serve Christ. To be totally transparent with you, when I first read this passage, I kind of wondered, I don't know why it's here in Acts. It's not really um, something that we come back to a lot. In fact, it might have surprised you when when Tim read the passage for us. Maybe it's a story you've not heard of in Acts. We've been going through this book together, looking at how Christ builds his church. And really, these two stories just set up Peter being in a position to go share the gospel with the Gentiles and include them into this salvation message. But I don't think that's the only reason that it's here. We see him, um, we see him do two miracles and two miracles of healing in that sense. But we also see, I think in this passage, some examples of encouragement, not just from the life of Peter, but also from the life of a woman named Tabitha. They were faithful servants in the church, and they went around and encouraged others as they were in the body of Christ as well. And I think the church desperately needs people like them today. They need people who are willing to encourage others. But as we go through this text, I don't want us to just focus on how they encouraged others and the specific acts that they did but also their attitudes and encouragement. You see, unlike some, they were humble. They didn't seek any of the credit for themselves. 
They weren't trying to make a name for themselves, but oftentimes they would serve in secret. They were gracious. They gave of whatever they had, whether it was a lot or whether it was very little, and they were dependent on Christ. And so as we go through this text this morning, what I want us to see and understand is this. It's that we should encourage one another for the glory of God and the good of the church. We should encourage one another for the glory of God and the good of the church. We see here in these examples of encouragement three different attitudes that I think we should have. The first one is in verses 32 through 35. We should be dependent. Be dependent. And I'll explain what I mean here in a moment. Look with me at verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there and among them all, he came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. So Peter, who is primarily based in Jerusalem, we know he's oftentimes doing ministry there. In fact, when persecution hits the church, we remember the Hellenistic Jews or the Greek Christians spread out. And they went out to Damascus and Antioch and all these other cities, Samaria. And they shared the gospel as they went. And this actually led to the furtherance and expansion of the gospel in the region. And we know that this is part of Christ's plan, right? That the gospel would go not only to Jerusalem, but also to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But Peter was an apostle and he stayed in Jerusalem Because he thought his primary ministry was to be there. But yet we saw in Acts 8 that Peter actually does go out to Samaria to confirm the work of salvation that was happening there. But now we see Peter's taking a little bit of a different approach. It says he's going here and there. He's spreading out. What I think this means is that he's traveling around Judea and Samaria. Now you might ask, what was he doing? Some say he was preaching the gospel, and I'm sure he was. That was part of what he did. But I actually think his goal was to encourage the church, and this is what we actually see him doing in these chapters. He's actually going to the different churches and strengthening them. It says he came down also to the saints, the holy ones, the Christians, those who are set apart by the gospel. And he goes to a town called Lydda. Lydda was known as Lod in the Old Testament. It's a pretty important city in that district. It had a pretty diverse population, a big Jewish population there. But it had probably had some Christian influences and a Christian church was planted there through, like I said, persecution. In Acts 8, the church spreads out due to persecution And so we see Christians go to Lydda. So there was a Christian population there. It was on the road from Jerusalem to Joppa. And so as Peter's going here and there and around everywhere, he goes to this city and notice that he meets a man. In verse 33, it says, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was Paralyzed. We don't know too much about this person. We know that he'd been in his bed. He could not walk. He was paralyzed. Some people debate whether or not he was bedridden for eight years. Another way you could translate that is that he was paralyzed since he was eight. 
I'd probably lean more towards the first where it's he was bedridden for about eight years. He could have had some kind of accident. We're not sure. We honestly don't know too much about this man. And the biggest question that comes up with him is, is he an unbeliever or is he a believer? Because that does affect a little bit of how you understand what Peter is doing here. And I would lean more towards the understanding that he is a believer for this reason. Luke is primarily concerned with how the gospel goes out to these different groups. And I think if he was an unbeliever but he got saved, Luke would have talked about his conversion. We see that in almost every other healing incident in Acts. That Luke somehow says, yeah, and they believed the gospel. But instead, he just says many believe the gospel after this. So I think he was already a believer. Now notice Peter's encounter with them in verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. It's a pretty short and simple statement. This is a very short story, this first story that we run into. But I want you to see who gets the credit. It's Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ is the one who heals you. Now, there's many who would claim to have the gift of healing today who are not trying to heal people in the name of Jesus Christ. They're trying to make a name for themselves. And you should be very careful in who you listen to and who you watch that tries to claim to have this gift. Peter says that Jesus Christ is the one who would heal Aeneas. Peter has been shown in Acts to have some pretty significant power. We read earlier that people would just lay down their mats and be paralyzed and hope that Peter's shadow would just pass them. And you know what? It says that he healed every single one of them. But the truth is it wasn't Peter, it was Jesus Christ. And Peter's showing us that here, that Jesus Christ is the one who brings healing. He doesn't take any credit, he just points to Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who can heal. It's not money, it's not works, it wasn't even the doctors during that time. It's only through the power of Christ that this man could be made well. Think about where Peter is at right now, even in his life. If you've studied the Gospels at all, you've seen a pretty dramatic change in the life of Peter. In the Gospels, Peter is always getting himself into trouble. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's asking Christ, hey, can I call down fire from heaven? Can I be the greatest disciple? He had the audacity to tell Christ when Christ says, hey, I'm going to go and suffer and die on the cross, but I'm going to rise again three days later. Peter has the audacity to tell him, hey, you're not going to do that. You're going to be alive. I'm not going to let any of that happen to you. Peter thought in the Gospels that he had great authority. And we see that he wanted some of that recognition for himself. We not only see that, but he also was not a man of remarkable faith in the Gospels. He is at this point in Acts. But remember when he's trying to walk on water. He can walk for a little bit, but he takes his mind off Christ. He doesn't have the faith to believe so he can't walk on water. And then even at the end, when Christ is going to the cross, 
Where do we find Peter? He's denying Christ three times, just as Christ said it would happen. So you think of that Peter, and you think of this Peter that we see in Acts, a man of great faith, great power, great authority, yet he gives all the glory to Christ. Peter says, I've learned through my years as a Christian that Christ is the only one who can make you well. And so he points back to Christ, and notice what he says. He says, rise and make your bed. Now, we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit. The phrase actually just says, rise and spread, or spread out. So some people think it says, make your bed, or uh, make up your bed. Some people say, think it says, spread out your table, get your table ready. Either way, either way you understand this, he's going to rise, he's going to walk, he's going to be ready to do different things. It's similar to when Peter heals the man in Acts 3, and he can not only walk, but he leaps and jumps and shouts because Christ has made him well. And notice what it says, and immediately he rose. The power of Christ worked in him immediately. And it has a result, too. Look at verse 35. And all the residents at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Sharon was probably a town near Lydda. The public from both towns were flocking to the city because they'd heard of the miracle. They'd heard of what had happened. And notice that phrase that Luke uses. He says, and they turned to the Lord. It shows an aspect in salvation of repentance. That yes, God works in us in salvation, but salvation is us turning from our sins and turning towards Christ. They turn from their own ways, their past, whatever their lives have been, and they turned to Christ through the work of the gospel. What does this teach us about encouragement? I think it first of all teaches us that we're dependent on Christ. A couple years ago, I was learning how to cook from my mother. Now, before then, I knew how to cook grilled cheese, a frozen pizza, a peanut butter sandwich, and that was about the extent of my cooking knowledge. And so she taught me some different skills, how to cut, how to bake, how to check for different things, and I thought I was getting to be a pretty good cook. What I didn't realize is that she was there the whole time making sure I didn't mess anything up and that I did everything like I was supposed to. And then one day I cooked for my friends and she wasn't there. And I forgot to thaw out the chicken that I needed. I accidentally lit the potatoes on fire in the skillet. I overcooked the chicken once I thawed it out so it was burnt. And my friends were thinking, yeah, this is some cook here, you know, like he can't even make chicken right. And I learned just how dependent I was on my mother to be there and show me how to cook. Sometimes we can become overconfident. This can happen even with pastors. They can think because of their giftedness, they have a good speaking ability, they have a big church, they've written, they have a following, that they are really worth something. And they don't realize how dependent they are on Christ or on the Spirit of God. 
They experience success, and they might at first recognize how God provides for them, but it can be a slow fade into self-dependency, into trying to do everything themselves. And oftentimes you see their ministries fall. Even we can contribute to that sometimes with celebrity pastors by going to them and thinking that they're the ones that really have wisdom. They're the ones who really have knowledge not realizing that it's honestly Christ and that we're nothing without him. But it's not just a danger of pastors. It's a danger for all of us as well. However you serve in the church, whatever your role is, we can become self-dependent. We can think it's all about us. Think about how easy it would have been for Peter to think he's a big shot. He's one of 12 people who saw Christ who walked with him, who learned from him. He was an apostle. He would walk by people while they were laying down and they would be healed instantly. He could have had a giant following. But Peter's very clear here. The first words out of his mouth are that Jesus Christ heals you. He's the one who can make you well. We can remember this in encouragement We should encourage others out of the goodness and love in our hearts towards them. But sometimes we can think, even in helping others, even in trying to bless others, that we really have something to give. That there's something about us that makes us special. You know what? It's a problem in our society as well. We've become a society that points to us and that we say, believe in yourself You can do it. And in fact, when I teach kids sometimes, they say, you're kind of dark, you know. You tell us that we can't do anything on our own, that you should look outside of yourself to the gospel, that without Christ, we're just nothing. And while we're all special and made in the image of God, we must recognize how utterly dependent we are on Christ. Peter remembers this. Peter shows us this in this passage. This morning, ask yourself these questions. Are you self-dependent? Are you dependent on your own abilities, your own giftedness? Are you giving the credit to Christ when something happens? When you do something well, are you giving him the glory for success he's brought into your life? If you're not doing that, he'll probably do something to humble you to the point where you will start to recognize him. Think in your life, how has God humbled you? How has he shown you just how dependent you are? For Peter, I imagine he thinks back to when he denied Christ three times. And that reminds him often of how weak And how sinful he can truly be. Be dependent on Christ. Secondly, be generous. Be generous. Look with me at verses 36 and 37. Now I have preaching professors and Bible scholars that would hate that I'm splitting up this next story into two points. But I want us to learn something from Tabitha. Look at verse 36 with me. There is in Joppa... A disciple named Tabitha. 
which is translated means Dorcas. Now, I want to stop right there. I know a lot of people who like Tabitha, whose name is translated Dorcas. I've not met anybody who's named their child Dorcas, though, so I'm not sure. You know, everybody likes her, but, you know, they must not like the name or something. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Who is Tabitha? Well, again, it's a woman we only meet here. We only know what the text tells us about her. And we're only going to spend two verses really talking about her and what we can learn from her example. But there is actually a lot we can learn from her. First of all, I want to just say that she lived in Joppa. It was a coastal town. It was 30 to 40 miles northwest of Jerusalem, probably 10 minutes from Lydda, which will be important in a little bit. And Luke is showing us again how the gospel is spread to these outside towns and regions from Jerusalem. Tabitha was a female disciple of Christ. She's one of she's the only female disciple to be called actually a female disciple, Matheata. It's the only time that word is used ever in the Greek New Testament. Now that's not to say there weren't female disciples, there were, but it does show us her importance in this town. Her name, translated, like I said, means Dorcas in Greek. Both mean gazelle or beloved. It's actually a very beautiful name in those languages. Now, you might ask yourself the question, why does Luke tell us what her name means in Greek? Well, go back to Acts 1 and think just for a second, who is Acts written to? It's written to Theophilus, who is Greek, who wouldn't have understood Aramaic and Tabitha. So he would need it translated to understand what her name actually meant. We get a glowing report of Tabitha from Luke. He highlights two things. First of all, that she was full of good works. Now, when we went through Titus earlier in the year, we talked about the importance of good works, good deeds. And they don't save us. Titus, Paul makes that clear to Titus. He says we're not saved by works of righteousness that we've done, but because we've been saved, we can do good works. And Tabitha understood this. Now, these works aren't necessarily expounded for us here, but look a little bit later in the passage, something we'll look at in the third point. Look at verse 39. When Peter comes onto the scene, it says, All the widows stood by, weeping and showing him the tunics and other garments she had made for them. She was generous. She gave them things that she'd made herself. Now the point of this is not saying that we should all pick up a sewing machine and start sewing garments and things like that for one another. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. But she did good works. She did acts of kindness for others. We'll later find out that she's laid to rest in the upper room, probably the upper room of her house. She was a wealthy person to have an upper room in her house. And it is likely, and this isn't necessarily confirmed for us, but I want us to understand it's likely that the church was probably meeting in her house. Oftentimes that is where the church met, in the large upper room of a believer's house. So again, that's not necessarily stated, but that could be another thing she did for the church. 
The rest of these good works aren't necessarily expounded for us, but we know she was a quality Christian woman. He also said that she did acts of charity. She had some financial means, we can tell from this passage, having the upper room, giving, being able to give financial gifts to others. She not only gave of her time and talent, but she also gave of her money. We see that she becomes ill and she dies. We don't know what she's ill from. We do see, however, that she's washed and she's laid in the upper room. All the above information is meant to set the stage for us for when Peter comes. You might ask yourself the question, why was she just laid in the upper room? Why wasn't she buried? There are some Jewish customs that would say you should wait three days before burial just in case they rise again from the dead. So we could say that they might have been expecting her to rise again. In fact, they go to Peter so that he could raise her from the dead. But again, we're not quite sure of why they just left her there. Other people, like Christ, were just buried right after they died. Either way, this brings up an interesting question. Why is Dorcas, why is Tabitha raised from the dead? You know, Stephen died from being stoned. He wasn't raised from the dead. Why did God specifically choose her? Well, I have a couple just thoughts on that. Um, But the most important thing I can say is that we're not sure. It's part of God's kindness that he raised Tabitha. And I want us to understand that. We're not totally sure why God chose to raise her during this time. But here's a couple thoughts. First, she was a beloved member of the church. Now, there have been beloved members of every church who have gone and passed away. And none of them have been raised from the dead. But I don't want us to miss that. Because that is part of why they go to Peter and ask him to raise her from the dead. Because they did love her. And they did miss her fellowship. Secondly, and I don't think this is all of it, but I do think this is some of it. She was an important member of the church. The church was probably meeting in her house. She was probably helping the church even survive during this time. So there's even part of the church's survival in Joppa that is dependent on Tabitha. Again, that's not to say that's all of her worth is just in what she gave. She was a beloved member of this church. But it was, it does seem to be an important aspect of this that the church's survival was based on Tabitha and her life. Now God could have provided and he probably would have, but we do see that this is part of it. So why was she raised? Because God in his kindness, like I said, wanted to see her live on. And that's what we'll see in a few moments. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about the example of Tabitha, that she was generous. But oftentimes we think of the word generous, and we think that you're just generous with your money. And she was. She was a woman of means, and she gave her money to others to help and encourage the church. But that's not all that she did. She also made things for people in the church. She was probably kind towards them. As we think about this generosity, maybe you're a person that God has blessed financially. Maybe you're not. 
you can still be generous. And I think generous in a couple different ways. First of all, with your time. With your time. Some of us don't think much of our time. Maybe you're a really busy person. Maybe you feel like you have all the time in the world to give. But you can be generous with your time. You can spend time with others. I'm a person I enjoy spending quality time with people. If I was more into the love languages thing, maybe I would say that's my love language. I'm not sure. I don't know all of that. But I do enjoy when I can spend quality time with someone. When was the last time you took the time to encourage a shut-in in our church? Someone who can't maybe make it out to church because of their illness. But you drove to them and you just spent time with them. If you've never done it before, I would encourage you to because I guarantee you will be just as blessed as they are. You will be just as encouraged as them. And you may not ever get recognition for it, but it is an important thing you can do. You can spend your time with someone. Secondly, what about your talent? I'm not talking. Sometimes we think of talent as in a musical ability. And hey, if you have musical ability, you can come up here. You can sing the wrong verse of the song with me. You can play the banjo or the drums or whatever you want to play. All right. If you have musical ability, let me know. But it's not just musical ability. It's also not just speaking ability as well. But how has God blessed you? Maybe you would never sing a solo in church, but you could help someone with their car issues. Maybe you could never help someone with their car, but you could help them figure out their technology or their phone. Maybe you could never help them with technology, but you could cook something for your pastor. I mean, for someone <laughs> in your congregation. How has God enabled you? And you might say, well, I'm not good at anything. Well, you probably are, but you just don't think of it as a talent because you do it all the time. What ways has God blessed you that you could encourage someone else in this church with? Next, our treasure, our valuables, our gifts. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's something else. How could you encourage someone? Maybe God has blessed you financially and you can give to others to help them in a time of need. And maybe he hasn't, but you know, the little bit that you have you've given to someone to encourage them. I think of Christ with the woman who gives all that she had in the offering. And it's not very much, but yet she gives it from her heart. Who can you bless with your treasure? And lastly, with your testimony. Your testimony. What do I mean by that? God has worked in your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's given you a testimony that you can share with others. Who can you encourage with your testimony? Now, these four T's are often used. I didn't come up with them. They're often used in talking about good stewardship principles. How can you steward your time, talent, treasure, and testimony well to encourage the church, to encourage others? It's not a major emphasis. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it. But I do want us to see that Tabitha did this with what God had given her. Finally, 
in verses 38 through 43, we should be humble. We should be humble. Look at verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Like I said, Lydda and Joppa were about 10 miles from each other. They had about three days, at least according to their traditions, before they really needed to bury her. And so they went and urged Peter to come without delay. Now notice they came in twos. This isn't really important in this passage, but if you've seen this in Acts, you've seen people go out in twos. You might be wondering, why did they do that? Well, one would be able to confirm what the other one was saying. And so it was even a Jewish custom to send out two people so that they could confirm the testimony of each other in that way. So we see that with Peter and John, Paul and Barnabas, the two men here. We see people go out in twos. And I think there's a lot of other practical reasons why you should do that in the first place. Sometimes people can be a little bit less intimidated when you go with another person. If you've ever shared the gospel with someone else, it's probably been helpful if you've taken another person with you to help you and encourage you. So we see that they send two messengers to Peter in Lydda and ask him to come immediately. Now, some people think he was sleeping. We don't really get that from the text. But look at verse 39. It says, so Peter rose and went with them. That's why people think he was sleeping, because he rose up to go. So he goes with them. He goes immediately. And it says, when he arrived... They took him to the upper room, and I I just love this scene. And all the widows come to him, and they're showing him all the things that she had made them. Now, I've been on a couple different, throughout internships and things that I've done, I've been on a couple different visitation trips where I've really not known what to expect. I one time went to a lady's house who was kind of at odds with the church, and her dogs just growled at me the entire time. Like, right next to me just growled at me for the entire 40 minutes or so I was there. So I just, as a pastor, I I think of Peter here, and it's just kind of interesting that as he's walking in, all the widows are just kind of rushing up to him, showing him the garments that she had made. Now, why were they doing this? Well, I don't think it was to convince Peter to heal her because he was already there. He was already there to try to rise her from the dead. But they were just showing what kind of woman she was. It speaks to the testimony of Tabitha. In fact, I think they might have just been there weeping had Peter been there or not, just because of how much they cared and loved her. Just as a side note to talk about Tabitha again, one of the interesting things when I go to somebody's funeral is to hear about all that they had done. And not to try to, you know, puff them up or you know, give credit to them and not to God. But it reminds me whenever I do that to try to leave a testimony with others about the glory of God. Who would be at my funeral? They wouldn't be showing the garments that I made for somebody, but who would be there talking about how I'd shown them Christ and encouraged them? So as Peter's walking in, he's got these widows who are showing them all the things Tabitha had done for them. But he sends him away in verse 40. It says, But Peter 
put them all outside and knelt down. Now, why did he send them outside? Well, I don't think he wanted to take any of the credit for himself. He was humble. I don't think he wanted to cause a big commotion. And this is pretty consistent with what we see from Peter. Also, just on a practical note, it was probably hard to operate if you had a bunch of crying widows all around him, you know. So he sends them all outside. And it's just him and Tabitha. Now, again, he could have had a big following. He could have had all these people in there watching him do this. But he didn't. It was just him and Tabitha. And all he says is this. He says, Tabitha, arise. Now, you might say, now, why did he not, you know, give credit to Christ and say, you know, Jesus Christ makes you rise like he did to Aeneas? Well, no one else was there to hear him. First of all, he sent them all outside. And we know that Peter understood that from the previous miracle. So he just says, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. He raises her from the dead, but only in the power of Christ. And really, to encourage the church that was there. And to encourage her. In verse 41, it says, He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Again, nobody saw this. Nobody was watching. Nobody put this on social media or anything. It was just Peter and Tabitha. And he wasn't trying to make a following, but yet he does end up getting one. Look at verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Again, Peter doesn't take credit for himself. We see this sometimes even happens on accident in Acts and in other places. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, Hey, some of you are claiming to be followers of Apollos. Some of you are claiming to be followers of me. And he says, I just want you to follow Christ. I just want you to be devoted to him. What does it matter that I planted and Apollos watered? Whatever happened, and we don't get a lot of details after this miracle, Peter does point them to Christ. He does call them to look and believe in Christ. So it says that many believed in the Lord. Then finally in verse 43, it says, He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. This is a bit of foreshadowing going into Acts 10, where Peter will be there when he's ready to share the gospel with Cornelius. But for now, not only in this text, but also in the previous story that we read, I want us to see that Peter was humble. Now you might say, what's the difference between Peter being dependent and Peter being humble? Well, Peter being dependent really understood that he had no power in and of himself. Peter being humble meant that he didn't take the credit for himself. And, and this is something I don't think we understand about humility, Peter didn't only look after his own interests. C.S. Lewis says this, that, some, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And even in this passage, and it's just implied, Peter doesn't just stay and rest, even if he was sleeping. But he immediately goes, he immediately throws off his schedule, and he immediately goes to encourage the church in Joppa. 
In fact, that's what Peter's doing during this whole time. He's going from here and there, and he's encouraging others. Maybe you're here this morning, and you think, okay, I don't think a lot of myself. Maybe you're even self-deprecating, where you talk down to yourself. You don't think you're worth much. But how often do we think only of ourselves? How often do we only think of what we can do, of what affects us? Sometimes, even as a pastor, and you think, well, a pastor, obviously you'd be humble or you'd be selfless. Sometimes even as a pastor, I just look at my week. How often is my week focused on how I can have the best week for myself? How I can have the sermon done on time? How I can avoid extra meetings or things like that? And even for myself, how can I be humble and thinking of others? As we close this morning, I want us to think about a couple of questions. First of all, what are my motivations for encouraging others? There are some people whom I outwardly and objectively do a lot of good, but they do it for the wrong reasons. They do it with the wrong intentions. They do it with the wrong motives. Think about Simon the Magician. He wanted to try to give others the spirit he wanted to try to buy it with money. He wanted to bypass God's system for how he gave people the spirit in the gospel. And it wasn't about it coming from a man. It was about it coming from God. Think about Ananias and Sapphira, who we've already met in Acts. They gave, yeah, they gave of their property. They sold property. They gave that money to the church. But guess what? They lied about how much they could actually give to try to make themselves look better to try to keep some of that money for themselves and peter tells them hey you couldn't have you could have kept all of it you could have just not sold your property but if you're gonna give to the church you'd better be honest about what you're doing how often are our motivations for encouraging others just about self-promotion how many times do we try to encourage others in public so that others can see how great and how good we actually are. What are my motivations for encouraging others? And then lastly, think of this. How can God use me to encourage others? You might say, I'm not really able to encourage others. I don't maybe have money to give. Maybe you don't think you have time to give. Maybe you don't think you have talent to give. In whatever ways God's blessed you, how can God use you to encourage others in his church? I hope this has been an encouragement to you this morning. As we close, I just am reminded of all the men and women throughout my life who have encouraged and helped me. And like I said earlier, there's some of them who may not even realize it. There's some people who may have just said something to me in passing that wouldn't realize how much of an encouragement that is to me. Friends, don't encourage others just so you can be known by others, but encourage others for the glory of God so that he can be glorified, he can be honored, and for the good of your church so that they can be edified and blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've spoken to us through it. 
We thank you for the message even that we saw today in Acts. God, we want to know you better through your word. Help us to encourage others. Help us to have the right motivations for encouraging others, Lord. To not be self-focused. To be focused on you. God, help us to think of ways we can even encourage others with our time, with our treasure, with our talent, even with our testimony, Lord. Help us to think of people who need encouragement around us. May you be honored and glorified by what we do. May this church and others be blessed. In Christ's name, amen.